What you aim at determines what you see. This was unforgettably demonstrated by the cognitive psychologist Daniel Simons. Back in 1999, he produced a video that had two different teams passing a basketball to each other. One team wore white shirts and one team wore black shirts. Each team had their own ball, and all they were doing was simply passing the ball to their teammates. It's a, it's a really simple video. And so as to, you know, he's a psychologist, so he's setting this whole thing up. So he says, listen, I want you guys to watch this video. It's about 30 seconds long, and here's the instructions. I want you to count how many times the players wearing the white T-shirts pass the ball to their other teammates. That's it. Just count how many times that the ball is passed. And so the, 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 the test subjects are sitting there, and they're, they're watching the video. And at the end, they would ask the question, how many times was the basketball passed? And most people watching it answered correctly, 15 times. They passed the ball 15 times, and they would say, you, you've answered correctly. And so the test subject would kind of go, hey, I'm pretty awesome. I can count to 15. They'd feel pretty good about passing the test. Then Dr. Simons would say, okay, great. Um, did you see the gorilla? And people would go, wait, what gorilla? Are you joking? And they go, there was no gorilla in that video. He goes, oh, no, there was, there was a gorilla in the video. And they'd say, no, 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 show me again. And so he would play back the video. They would watch it again, this time without counting, obviously looking for the gorilla. And sure enough, halfway through the video, a man dressed in a gorilla suit waltzes right into the middle of the screen. Not in the back, not in like some side corner, right in between everybody passing the ball. He beats his chest and then he waltzes right out. And half of the test subjects missed the gorilla altogether. Now, why? Why would they miss the gorilla? Well, because the subjects were so focused on the ball being passed by the team that they failed to give any attention or concern, not just for the gorilla, but for anything else that matters. They're not counting how many times the black team passes the ball. They're not, they're not counting anything else except I'm supposed to watch the white team passing the ball and counting it. They had selectively aimed their focus. And see, the gorilla didn't interfere with the ball, so that didn't alert them to anything. And they had this very narrowly defined task of counting the number of times the ball was passed. And what he was trying to show is that when we focus on one thing, we are unintentionally blind to everything else that we've determined as less valuable or less important because we've over-elevated something to being the status of important. Jordan Peterson, in his book, The Twelve Rules for Life, writes this. Our eyes are always pointing at things we are interested in approaching, investigating, or looking for, or having. We must see, but to see, we must aim, and so we're always aiming. It, it, it's part of the design of our eyes to focus and, and, and direct our attention to something. So today, as we begin this new series in the book of Jonah, it's called God's Relentless Pursuit. And Jonah, alongside like David and Goliath and Noah's Ark, is one of the most known stories in the Bible. Even if you've never read the story itself or even read the Bible, most people have heard of Jonah and the whale. The Bible calls it a great fish, not even a whale. Probably was a whale, but it says it was a great fish. And right there, 
We aim the attention of our focus in the wrong direction. We're, we, when, we, when we make the book of Jonah to be about Jonah and the whale, we're selectively aiming our focus at the wrong thing. See, Jonah, as we're going to find out, isn't a story about an unfortunate experience with a great big fish that misses the point completely. What Jonah is is a story about a man who experiences great grace from a big God. Jonah is a story about a man who's on the run from God and about a gracious and loving God who relentlessly pursues. And so today, as we begin our trek through the next six weeks in the book of Jonah, today I'm going to do an overview. This is, this is a flyover. We're going to cover every chapter, all four chapters of Jonah, and we're going to walk quickly through the whole book just looking at the different ways that Jonah runs from God and how God faithfully and graciously continues to pursue and then we're going to see that while the book of Jonah gives us a biography about one of God's prophets, it's actually written to be a mirror. Because when you read the book of Jonah in the right way, when you aim your focus the way God intends, we find out that it's not merely a book about Jonah. We realize that I'm just like Jonah, that I too run from God. And by his grace, God also relentlessly pursues us. And if we're reading the book with the right focus, we find out that I am, that we are Jonah. So let's dive in, pun intended, to the book of Jonah. He goes into the ocean. Okay, all right. Let's dive into the book of Jonah to see how we run from God and how God relentlessly pursues. So chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, now right here, the writer introduces us to the main character of the story. You probably guessed it. His name is Jonah, and he's a prophet. Now even though in this introduction, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jonah was a prophet, back in 2 Kings, we learn that Jonah is a prophet, and he's prophesying and serving the Lord under the reign of King Jeroboam II, who had reigned in Israel as king from 782 to 753. Now what you need to know about Israel's history is at this time, what once was this unified kingdom has gone through kind of a civil war, and now there's the northern kingdom um, and the southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam II is the king over um, this northern territory um, of Israel. And at this time in Israel's history, things aren't looking good. If you're, if you're reading it and, and kind of following along, you can tell, man, this is kind of the calm before the storm. Things are not going well. And this is how the Bible describes the reign of Jeroboam. Look with me at 2 Kings verse 14 and verse 24. This is talking about Jeroboam. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which was his father, which he made Israel to sin. So his father was a bad king, and then he comes to the throne his father, Jeroboam I, and instead of departing from sin, he continues in it. And the Bible describes his reign as he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's not the one-line description that you want at the end of your life, right? When someone says your name and you go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, to sum up someone's life, that's not how you want to be remembered. But even still, under his reign, God expanded their borders despite their leader's sin, despite the sin of the people, and he brought about some stability in Israel during this time. And so uh, Jonah was a prophet to this king, and it told them, you're going to experience a time of prosperity. And at the same time, there was this other prophet named Amos who said, yeah, but it's not going to last 
long. And eventually all this prosperity is going to be for nothing. And we know from history that this is exactly what happened. About 30 years later in 722 BC, the Assyrians would defeat this northern kingdom of Israel. Now why does all this background matter? Well, background sets up the stage. It helps you understand what's going on in the story because we aren't um, living during that time. If we were writing emails and, 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 and letters to each other, I wouldn't have to give you a comprehensive overview of kind of the state of our lives right now because we're all experiencing it. So I could talk about things that are going on in the world stage. I could talk about, uh, I could even say, I could say something about our president, not even mention his name, and you would know exactly who I'm talking about. So this background helps you um, understand all the things that are going on in the book of Jonah. It sets the stage for the story so that when we read verse 2, you go, oh, wait a minute, something big is going on. So the word comes to Jonah and he says this, the Lord says, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God comes to Jonah. It's just, he's, he's in the prophecy business, right? So he's expecting God to come to him and give him a word of direction. And he says, go to Nineveh and call to them to repent of their evil and turn from their wicked ways. Now here's what you need to know about Nineveh. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The people who in about 30 years are going to come and conquer them. And he's telling them, go right into the capital city and, and prophesy to them. Telling them that if they don't repent, um, disaster is going to come. Um, uh, uh, Nineveh would have been in current day uh, Mosul, Iraq. It was a very large city. In fact, Jonah tells us it took three days to walk from one side of the metroplex of Nineveh to the other. The city walls were so big that three chariots could ride along the walls side by side. It was an impressive city. But more than their size, more than the greatness of their geography, they were greatly feared throughout the land. Um, you can, there are still um, hieroglyphics of, uh, of other um, nations that show the terror that Nineveh caused, that the Assyrians caused. Over the years, they haunted Israel. They plagued them with war and terror. And this is the same nation, like I said, that is going to eventually come and conquer Israel. And Jonah is called to go to that nation. And there were some of the most cruelest people in the ancient world. When they would conquer a nation, history tells us that they would often skin their victims alive. They would rape their women and they would murder their children. There are stories about piles, like a, almost a mountain of decapitated heads outside of the city just to let people know you don't want to mess with Nineveh. This would be the equivalent of God coming to you today and saying, get up, go from Waltham and go to Syria. Meet with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, and tell them to repent for God has seen their evil and it's time to turn from your wicked ways. Now, if you were given that assignment, how good would you feel about that, right? Jonah hears that the same way that you and I would hear that assignment today. He says, bye, Felicia, I'm out. I'm out. He's like, yeah, I, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm retired I'm out of the game. No more prophecy business for me. 
And so what does he do? He heads down to the coast to get onto the first boat headed in the opposite direction. He goes down to Joppa, which is on the, the western seaboard of, of Israel, and says, hey, where are you headed? Tarshish, great, never been there. Love to go to Spain and check it out. And so he actually goes further across the Mediterranean Ocean uh, than just going up northeast into Nineveh. And what you need to know about Israelites is they, they hated the ocean. They were not a sea-loving uh, 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 people. They weren't out there in their boats hanging out. They avoided crossing the Mediterranean at all costs. So he does what the most un-Jewish thing, gets on a boat and heads out into the open sea to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. Instead of going northeast, he goes far west. It's more work to run from God. Now, why is he running away? Well, one of the first obvious things is self-preservation, right? He thinks if I go to Nineveh and I tell them what you're telling me to tell them, they're going to kill me. They'll take one look at me, and I'll be sleeping with the fishes. Someone has seen the Godfather. Do yourself a favor, people. Come on. Perhaps it's self-righteousness. Maybe Jonah's saying, God, did you say Nineveh? Don't you know those are evil people? They're never going to repent. Not to mention, they're way outside of your covenant. We're the people of God. Prophets go to our own people. You, we, we don't go to other nations. We're your people, God. They are your enemies. You don't want to go tell them to repent. You must be mistaken. That's a form of self-righteousness. Perhaps it's just self-determination. God, I just don't want to do it. I have my reasons, and guess what, Lord? They're mine. I don't need to tell you. I don't have to justify them to you. I'm out of the profit business. I'm good. Self-determination. It's likely, just like you and just like me, a mix of those things. We're, our motives aren't always um, clear to discern. There's usually a lot of different things going on. There's all sorts of reasons for running away from God. But whatever the reason, the writer does tell us exactly what he's running from. Twice in one verse, the writer says he was fleeing from, running from, the presence of the Lord. More than anything, the writer tells us, if you, if you strip everything away, he's running from God. Now, this gives us a great picture of what sin is. There's a lot of ways to define sin. There's a lot of ways to describe it. We've talked about this at Seven Mile Road. We have this working definition that we use for sin. We say that sin is the catch-all word for any attitude or action, whether trivial or paramount, unintentional or intentional, whether by commission or omission, that harms God's creation and is ultimately offensive to a holy God. And what this definition does is it highlights the fact that sin can be in our attitudes and our actions. It, it, sin is in our motives and our behaviors. It shows us that sin can be big and small, intentional, unintentional. It can be doing the wrong thing. It can also be failing to do the right thing. It highlights that, that sin has this impact both vertically in our relationship with God as well as horizontally with God's people and the world around it. We can sin against God. We can sin against others. But ultimately, all of our sin is offensive and accountable to a holy God. Now, all of that is important to understand the, the depth and the breadth and the robust nature of sin. But for the moment, 
the writer in Jonah is giving us a picture of what sin is. See, this definition tells us what sin is, and Jonah shows us what sin is. Kind of the difference between telling and showing, and both are necessary in order to understand it. And what it's telling us is that sin in its essence, in its most fundamental sense, is running from God. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't merely just give us a list of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts like a, a lawyer or a legislator might do. It embeds those rules in a story, in a dramatic story that helps illustrate why we need them. And it helps us see that, that there are blessings for following the Lord and there are curses that come with disobeying the Lord. And what I want us to see, I want us to aim our eyes to see that the book of Jonah is telling us that the essence of sin, when you get down into its core, is this running away from God. Here the writer tells us that Jonah ran from the presence of God. Now this Hebrew word for presence is the same Hebrew word that they use for face. You could use them interchangeably. And that makes sense to us because when we think about someone's presence, if you thought about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go spend some time with this person, you usually think about their face. It's how we kind of uh, capture who a person is. So it says Jonah's running from the very face of God. And when you think about it that way, you think about he's running from this relationship. He's, he's running from his obligations um, serving as a prophet. He's running on this call that God has put on his life. He's running from the very God who could protect him going into enemy territory and deliver him. He's running from the God who loves him. And when you run from the presence and the purposes of God, you're making a very bold declaration with your actions. What you're saying, even though you're not saying it with your words, but by your life, you're saying, God, I don't need you and I don't want you. Now, Jonah doesn't say these words in the book, but his, his actions speak loud and clear. I mean, think about it. Up until this point in Jonah's life, following God has been in line with his priorities and his preferences. He's, he's, he, he has actually given a, a really great assignment for a prophet, right? A lot of times prophets bring bad news. He, he got to give good news to his king. So it's, it wasn't hard. It didn't cost him anything. He was like, yeah, God, I'll go and do that for you. But now he's been given a direction by God that could cost him. It's not in line with his preferences and his priorities. And so he bails. And see, when we run from God and his purposes, eventually we find that we're not merely running from him. We're also running against him. It's this other element of our running because now we're opposing his rightful rule as our king. We're, we're, we're opposing his loving guidance as our father. See, God has purposes and he's trying to accomplish them. And by, by not being obedient to them, he's, he, he's, he's pushing up against the purposes of God. And the writer also in dramatic form tells us what happens when you run away from and when you run against God. The writer in three times in chapter one says that Jonah went down. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, and later we find out he's going to go down into the inner part of the ship, and later we're going to find that he goes down to the depths of the sea. And the writer, artfully and creatively, is, 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 is really intentional with his language because the, the same Hebrew word to talk about going down was this euphemism uh, or, or, or an, an idiom to talk about death. 
It's like today we don't talk about someone dying. We say they, they passed away, right? That same Hebrew word, it was a way to say, he was, you could say he's you know, by location going down, but it was also a way of saying, yeah, somebody went down today. They died today. And so the writer is trying to show us, look, when you run from God, you will go down, and you'll go further down. And this play on words is intentional. What he's saying is every step that he takes away from the presence of the Lord, he's spiraling downward, taking one more step closer to death. What's happening here is we're taking this abstract idea of sin and it's putting flesh on it. Instead of just telling us about sin or giving us a definition of sin, he's showing us that sin is running away from and it's running against God. Now, as the story goes, the Lord sends a mighty wind upon the sea. So John is in this boat now and a mighty wind comes upon the sea so much that the seas become tempestuous. That's not a word that you want to describe the ocean when you're on it, right? If you're going out on a cruise, you want to look at the forecast, and if it says tempestuous, you're out on that cruise, right? Not going, not getting on a boat when the seas are tempestuous. But I'm no sailor, but I know you don't want the seas to be described that way. And don't miss who sends the storm. The word tells us the Lord sends a mighty wind so that the seas became tempestuous. He's not just coincidentally unfortunate. He's not in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's the Lord who sends the storm. And as we pan back, we realize this is actually the Lord beginning his pursuit of Jonah. Now, it may at this point not look like a graceful pursuit. You might go, I don't want God to pursue me like that. I don't want him to send a mighty wind. But God's pursuit is his grace, and in his wisdom, he pursues us in the way that he sees fit. You know why? He knows the heart that he's going after, and he knows the way to get to that heart. At this point, Jonah is hardened. He doesn't want to go, and so God brings a pursuit that's going to meet him where he is. Now, he's on board with sailors who've sailed plenty of times before, and, and, and the way that the story's written, you know that they know this isn't the usual storm. They realize something different is going on. And it says um, that they started praying to their gods, casting lots to figure out what's going on, and they start bailing cargo. Now, if you think about it, these guys have been um, uh, tasked to get cargo from one place to another. And you know this isn't just any storm that they've sailed out of before. If they're saying, look, at this point now, we're cutting all of our losses. We just want to survive this storm. So they're praying and throwing out everything just to lighten the boat to hopefully not uh, let it break in half. And they start asking, hey, who offended their God to bring this storm from hell? This is unlike anything we've ever seen. And everyone, you know, you can imagine start pointing the finger. Man, I think it was Billy. You know, he's kind of a shady guy. You know, and, and, and all that's going on. They cast lots to determine who it is. And the Bible tells us the lot fell to Jonah. So they're going, hey, the gods have spoken. You must have done something. It's another sign of God's pursuit, right? That even like what seems like chance rolls the right way so that it lands on Jonah. And so he says, yeah, you got me. It was me. I'm running from God. And so they do the most natural thing. They say, well, who are you anyway, right? And he says, this is up, verse nine. 
I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. Now imagine at this point the look on their faces. He's saying, wait, you believe that your God is the God of heaven, the God of the land, the God of the sea, which is another way to say you believe that your God is in charge of everything, and you're trying to run from that God? Isn't he everywhere? Like, how can you actually run from that God? I mean, if I believe in the God of the land, then I could go to the sea because this God isn't in charge of that, right? But you're saying your God is in charge of everything, everywhere. So is, is there any place that you can run from him? And it doesn't add up, right? His words betray his actions. Now, so far, we've seen some of his motives for running. Remember, we talked about self-preservation, self-righteousness, self-determination. Now we start to see some of the different ways that he's running from God. Even at this point, instead of owning his sin and repenting, he's kind of pulling out his religious ID card, right? He's saying, listen, I'm a God-fearing man, but I'm also on the run. Instead of saying, you know what, I shouldn't be running from God, he's trying to cover it up with his religiosity. See, being a hypocrite is another way of running and avoiding his responsibility. See, that's what being a hypocrite is. It's covering your sin with this religious identity, right? Instead of just owning it and saying, I'm on the run, I'm a sinner, I shouldn't be. I really need to repent. He comes out by saying, well, really, I'm a really religious guy. So I have some justification for what I'm doing. Now, as you read on in the story, you're gonna find out that the men, he, he tells the men, listen, if you want the storm to stop, you just need to throw me overboard. Now, at first, this might seem like the first selfless act Jonah has made in the whole book. But again, if you dig a little deeper, you realize this puts the sailors in a difficult position, right? He's saying, I, like, I'm not going to throw myself overboard, but, but you can throw me overboard. And they're thinking, what, you want us to kill you? So now your blood will be on our hands? We've already seen what your God can do. We don't want your blood on our hands. It's another way for Jonah to escape running away from God. So the sailors at first don't take him up on the offer. The Bible says that they try to row harder to get out of the storm, but it says as they tried to row harder that the seas just continued to get worse and worse. So at this point, they're figuring it's either his neck or ours, so they take their chances and they toss Jonah overboard. But before they do, they pray and say, God, we're just learning about who you are. Would you please have mercy and forgiveness on us? We feel like this, we're like backed up against the wall here. And it seems like you've got business with him anyway, so we're going to give him to you. Right? They throw him into the sea, and immediately the sea stops raging. The Bible also tells us at that point, the sailors realize, man, this God is legit. They make a sacrifice and pray and thank the Lord right then and there. Now, you imagine Jonah as he's you know, plummeting down into the sea, he's figuring, well, at least this whole ordeal is over. But no, God appoints a giant fish to swallow him. Now, to his dismay, he's not dead, right? He comes to and realizes, man, I'm in the belly of this thing, and he begins to pray. Jonah gets some perspective, right? It probably smells awful in there. That's the thing I always think about is how bad does it smell in there? It's dark, it's crazy. You don't know if you're gonna start getting digested, But he does, he finally gets that perspective and he spends some time praying. He stops running from the presence of God and actually starts looking for him. He starts praying. He seeks his presence. And in his prayer, we're going to cover all this in more detail over the next couple weeks. He realizes it was the Lord who cast him into the deep. 
See, Jonah has been spiraling down, and now the Lord brings Jonah even further down to vividly show him that when you run from God, it ultimately ends in your death. Peter Craigie says it like this, but not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. So he had to get all the way down into the depth of the ocean, into like this, really like a tomb with gills, you know, before he finally got some perspective and realized, I don't think I really want to run from the Lord anymore. And by God's grace, you can even pray to him at the, in, the, in the ocean, inside the belly of a fish. It was there that Jonah realized that when you run from God, you're running away from his steadfast love and grace Look what he says in verse 7, chapter 2. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And he finishes his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah had neglected the Lord and run away from him. But the Lord was there the whole time pursuing him. And he came to realize that the storm wasn't sent for retribution, but the storm was sent for restoration. And he starts asking, God, would you deliver me? Would you save me? Salvation belongs to you. And so in this tomb with gills, Jonah cries out to God for deliverance, even though he doesn't deserve it. Now, what would have all, uh, certainly been death, right? Either drowning at sea or dying and being eaten alive by a giant fish actually becomes his means of rescue. See, the Lord appointed this fish to rescue him. And not only does he save him, but he gives him transportation back to land. He doesn't even have to swim his way out of this one. And we find that God doesn't give up on him as his prophet. So then when you open up into chapter three, God comes to him again and he repeats his command. Now arise, go to Nineveh, and tell them what I've told you. Go, go preach the message that I'll give you. Now, as the story goes, we find that Jonah does go to Nineveh and preaches that message. And we don't really get a full transcript of his sermon. That's kind of not the point of, of Jonah. Jonah's more about uh, the, the, the person of Jonah than really the message of Jonah. But the way that the writer summarizes it is he says, this is, this is the way they summarize the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we, we don't want to speculate too much, but from this summary of his message, we, we, we see it's heavy on sin, heavy on consequences, and really light on grace and mercy and the nature and character of God. But amazingly, the Bible tells us that Nineveh, this, this city who's so marked by evil, they repent. They hear the message of the Lord, they believe in God, and they, um, they, they call for a citywide fasting and praying. The king himself, the leader of this nation, declares a, a nationwide fasting and prayer. People are covered in sackcloth, and everyone is called to repent. This is what the king, decree, uh, uh, his decree in Jonah uh, verse 3, verse 8 he says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may perish. 
They probably know that we're wicked and cruel people. This judgment message comes, and they figure we should give it a shot. And the Bible says that when God saw how they repented, he actually turned back from, uh, from disaster that was headed their way. Now, how do you think Jonah responded? Was he excited that they had listened to his, his message, his sermon landed on the people? Was he pumped about that? When you open up chapter 4, verse 1, this is what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. See, he can't believe that this happened. He's angered by the fact that they repented. He wanted God to bring judgment and disaster. And so it says that Jonah begins to pray to God. It's truly more of a pouting temper tantrum than it is a prayer. But he says, God, I knew you were going to forgive them. I knew you were going to show mercy and grace. That's why I went to Tarshish. I didn't want you to forgive them. And then he says, God, why don't you just kill me? Just end it. Take my life. It'd be better for me to die than to live. And you would think that by now Jonah would have learned to trust in the Lord and his plan by now. You would have thought that Jonah, realizing how much he had been forgiven, the fact that, Jonah, that God had pursued him and delivered him out of death, that he'd be filled with gratitude and joy. He'd even be excited that God would extend mercy even to their enemies. But his response shows us that Jonah has a long way to go. Jonah, like all of us, is a work in progress. He's running away from God, though this time he doesn't get on a boat. This time he's running, and it's much more of an internal running than it is an external running. He's, he's running from God in his heart. He says, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even excited about who you are. I'm filled with anger and resentment. I don't like that you're merciful and gracious. So what does God do in that moment? Does he say, good idea, Jonah, I'm tired of your whining and complaining. Let's go ahead and take care of your request. Really hearing, uh, really tired of it. No, he engages the heart. God says, hey, Jonah, this is verse four, chapter four, verse four. He says, do you do well to be angry? Like, how's that working out for you, being angry? See, instead of casting him away, instead of killing him like he's asked, God is drawing near. In the first instance, we see God bringing about a storm and fury that's at the, on this macro level, and now he's engaging his heart. He says, Jonah, son, why are you so angry? Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. But Jonah isn't ready to talk, and so he walks out of the city and goes and sulks there. And as he sits down, the Bible tells us that God caused a plant to grow kind of right behind him, kind of miraculously. This, this plant grows and it provides shade for him. The Bible tells us that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then the next day, God appointed a worm to eat the roots of the plant. And just as quickly as this plant grew, the plant withered away. And it says that God appoints a scorching east wind. And, and caused the sun to beat down on Jonah. So you imagine, right, he's excited about this plant, and then God takes it away just as quickly as it comes, and then God brings a hot wind and a scorching sun to just blare down and put him in the hot seat. And again, Jonah asks, God, would you just finally do it and kill me? Just kill me. And God says, hey, do you do well to be angry? 
See, he never answered God's question before. And so God pushes the envelope a little closer. And Jonah says, yes, I should be angry. I love that plant. And now it's gone. I'm hot, I'm miserable, and I'm just angry enough to die. God continues to pursue his heart, and he draws out this lesson to Jonah. And he says, you got pity on this plant that you've known for a day? You didn't even plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't grow it. You didn't cultivate it. You didn't cause it to grow. You've got nothing invested in this plant. Why do you care about it so much? And he says, but guess what? I did create Nineveh, all 120,000 of them. I know them all. Shouldn't I have pity and compassion on them? They're people, and I've created them, and I am their God. I have much more invested than them than you have in this plant. And that's how the book ends. It's on this cliffhanger. We don't know how Jonah responds. But we do know is that Jonah is deeply flawed. He's, he's plagued by sin. In fact, as we go throughout this book, you're going to find out there's no chapter where Jonah comes out as kind of the hero of the book. He spent the whole book running from God, and it gives us this vivid picture of sin, that sin ultimately makes us ungrateful and untrusting in our relationship with God, and it's just a matter of time and circumstance before we too run from his presence. And when we're running from the presence of God, our, our communion with him, the, the nature of our relationship is, is broken and, it's, it, 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 and we spiral downward to become hardened, alone, and angry, just like Jonah. And what's also clear in Jonah as we go throughout this study is that the hero of the book is God, that he's the one who pursues Jonah by whatever means necessary. Now, hopefully, um, as we've been looking at Jonah, you've started to identify with him. You've come to realize that the book of Jonah isn't just about him, but it's also about you and me because just like Jonah, we run from God, but yet God relentlessly pursues. Colin Smith, um, talking about the book of Jonah, says, some people teach us by their example, and Jonah teaches us by his weakness. By confessing his own failures, Jonah holds up a mirror for us to see the struggles and enigmas of our Christian lives. We come to find out as we look at Jonah that we too are concerned with our self-preservation. That sometimes we run from God because we're interested in preserving our lives. We would rather trust in ourselves more than God. We're unwilling to be vulnerable and rely on him. We're going to find out that we're also self-righteous, that there's that root of pride that grows up in all of us where we think we're right in our own eyes, even though we failed to humbly live according to God's standards. And ultimately, we're going to find that all of us live by the creed of self-determination. We simply just want to do whatever we want to do. We love self-autonomy. We believe the lie that no one, not even God, should be able to tell me what to do. And we're going to find that sometimes we run to uh, pursue a life of pleasure and comfort. Sometimes our running is, is motivated by that we simply have no time for God. We've, we've built up the busyness of our lives and we've left no room for him. Sometimes we run by avoiding him. We, we, we know he's come, that, that he wants our hearts and so we, we avoid him intentionally. 
We become so consumed by work and other relationships and other interests that we just have no time from God. And sometimes we're so self-righteous that we become bitter, ungrateful, and hardened. So we look at the book of Jonah, it's going to become a mirror for us to see that we too run from him. Now, if we're willing to be honest, as we look in the mirror, we're going to see some of our, uh, the worst parts of our character on display. But we're also going to find, if we're willing to honestly deal with those character flaws, we'll see that God himself is not uh, just uh, uh, all-knowing and seeing it, but he's also rich in mercy, love, and grace, and that God, just like Jonah, will pursue you too. See, if sin is running from God, grace is his initiative to pursue us and to save us from our self-destructive behaviors, beliefs, and motives. God is going to be patient with us. He's going to be willing to go to extreme lengths to get to our hearts. We see in Jonah, God is willing to use the seas, a storm, sailors, a giant fish, a pagan nation, a plant, and a worm to get after Jonah's heart, whatever it takes. We see in Jonah that he didn't want to go preach this message of repentance to the enemies of God. He knew the character of God, that God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He knew that deep down God was sending him to his, to his enemies that they would repent and be forgiven. And when he did, he, ironically, when he refused to go um, preach to God's enemies, he himself became an enemy of God. He stood opposed to God and his purposes. And yet, while Jonah was an enemy to God, God pursued him. And just like Jonah, our running isn't merely taking us down some lesser path. See, it's not that you and I just need a nudge. Like, we've been doing pretty good, and every once in a while, we hit those little um, grooves in the road on the side of the highway that lets you know you need to come back in um, to the center lane. That's not what God is doing here. What we find out as we look at our sin is that we are ultimately all opposing God, his purposes, and his rule. But God, but Jonah, just like Jonah, God will pursue us even though we're his enemies, even though we're sinners, even though we're running from him and running against him. Look what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. He says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. To pursue us, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Not when we were pursuing him, but while we were running from him, not as his people, but as his enemies. There is no greater demonstration of God's pursuit than for God himself to become human, to take on our sin and pay the penalty that our sins deserved. That's the message of Jonah. That's the gospel, that when we run from God, God still relentlessly pursues. Now we are going to close our time today by reading through the book of Jonah that I've just given an overview. So if our readers would come up I would encourage you today, we're not going to have the words on the screens, but I would love it if you would take the Bibles underneath your seats, open up to the book of Jonah, and follow along. And what we're going to do is we're going to read through each chapter, and one of the readers is going to read, and at the end of the book, we're going we're to add kind of a, a liturgical feel to it, 
We're going to say out loud, because right, the whole point is that we, we see that, that just like Jonah, we run from God and God relentlessly pursues. And as we, as we get to the end of each chapter, the reader is going to say, we are Jonah. We run from God and God relentlessly pursues. It's going to be this way for us to start entering into the story and start identifying with the sin of Jonah so that we can also identify with the rescue of Jonah. This liturgical reading is meant for us to hear God's word so that the word of God will dwell deeply in our hearts and to give us an opportunity to begin identifying with him and marvel at the grace of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, each and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We are Jonah. We run from God, and God relentlessly pursues. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me deep into the seas, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. 
I went down from the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We are Jonah. We run from God, and God relentlessly pursues. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Uh, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and, uh, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We are Jonah. We run from God, and God relentlessly pursues. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, 
You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We are Jonah. We run from God, and God relentlessly pursues.